You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. The Boss Hog of Liberty podcast is the latest hit on the We Are Libertarians Network. Each week, Jeremiah Morrill and Dakota Davis explore life in Henry County, Indiana. It's a show about our circle of friends, public officials, and our experiences. 80% observation, life, humor, and 20% politics. Boss Hog of Liberty is the day-to-day happenings of Henry County, Indiana, which is just like your community. Add us on iTunes and sample us today. Dear Leader would want you to. Hey there, Liberty lovers. This is Mark Clare of the Lions of Liberty podcast, where we strive to bring you great conversations about the ideas of liberty three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Check us out at lionsofliberty.com. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. Hey, Liberty Rockers, this is Johnny Rocket from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Each week, I strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, economists, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check it out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com or find us on iTunes. Each show is action-packed, explicit, and a lot of fun. So join me at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com every week for the newest episode. Keep liberty alive and rock and roll. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. We bring you all of the irreverence modern politics deserves while putting people before political parties. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective with the goal of leaving you better informed. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe on Patreon at wearelibertarians.com. In exchange for supporting our program, we give you all kinds of cool bonus content and free stuff. Please be warned that this show is raw, unedited, and authentic, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. The only thing offensive about this episode is uh, the opinions expressed, because you will will go, wow, I might be against the FDA, uh, which is a fairly radical thing to say at the beginning of a podcast, but by the end, I think you will understand that the FDA is a barrier to health. It doesn't actually support uh, good health, uh, and it is oftentimes a roadblock. It, it seems totally counterintuitive that more regulation eats, equals less safety, but as I think Dr. Mary Ruart and I explain, mostly her, uh, I'm just the monkey asking the questions, uh, she explains why the FDA is really a barrier. She is a, a scientific researcher and now a libertarian author and speaker. You've probably seen her name, uh, but I really enjoyed my conversation with her about 
the FDA and her new book, Death by Regulation, which you can find at deathbyregulation.us if you're interested in this subject. So please, without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mary Ruart. Sorry, my Hoosier accent gets in the way there. Dr. Mary Ruart. <laughs> All right, here you go. I am here with Dr. Mary Ruart, someone who I have followed for a long time, and uh, thank you for joining me on the program. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. It's good to be here. I've followed you for a long time, and I was the marketing guy for the Advocates for Self-Government in 2013, and I read your book, Healing Your World, and uh, it was actually it was very influential, so it's great to talk to you because it was it was the first book that I went, oh, you can be, uh, you don't have to be an economics libertarian necessarily. There's other aspects to libertarianism besides Rothbardian economics. It was very influential on me because I think it really was the first time I realized you have to have empathy involved in it, and you also have to have personal growth in uh, libertarian principles. Before we get into your background, I mean, what, how, I mean, and this is part of your background, I mean, how did you come to realize that personal growth was an essential part of building a libertarian society? Well, I was into both the personal growth movement and the libertarian movements for quite some time before I really connected them together. And it happened really in a moment. I was reading about our foreign policy and how it kind of backfires every time. And I was I was trying to figure that out. And all of a sudden, I I realized that everything kind of connected, that, that the ends we get are very much related to the means we use. So since we were using a lot of taxation and the draft and things of this nature to do our foreign policy, I realized that the ends were probably going to be bad. And with that, there was a recognition that we are we are constructed as biological beings to desire freedom and to to really not progress as human beings unless we do have that freedom. And freedom, of course, can mean many things. In libertarianism, we talk about political freedom, and obviously that's necessary to a very large degree to exercise your personal freedom. So it all kind of came together for me in a moment. And the result of that moment was the book Healing Our World, which actually shows that the libertarian ideal is not just economics. It's really a multifaceted diamond. And to the extent that we integrate all parts of ourself and our understanding of ourself into how we relate to others and how we relate to ourself, that really makes a huge, huge difference in the kind of world we get. Yeah, and he healing our world, I apologize, I think I said healing your world, but uh, you talk about the good neighbor policy. Can you explain what that is? Yes, it's essentially the non-aggression principle, which we talk about as libertarians, which means that we don't initiate physical force, fraud, or theft against others. And if we do, accidentally or on purpose, we restore the victim as much as we can. And so that's really the way we interact one-to-one. -one. But somehow when we start interacting group-to-group, -group, especially through government, we tend to throw that out the window, and a lot of the times we don't even realize it. So let's go back to your origin story. I mean, every libertarian, uh, there are very few people born libertarian. You kind of have a moment or a genesis that leads you to, to the philosophy. Where did you get your start? Well, I really got my start in college when I read Ayn Rand. I guess probably I 
would be describe myself as a liberal at that point. And, it, you know, it was it was obvious to me that it wasn't a very loving thing to do to put a gun at somebody's head and take their money in order to help somebody else, <laughs> that that was much less loving than them being unselfish. And so that's what really, really, I guess, was the final moment of my conversion into libertarianism. Great. And you've written broadly about a lot of different things. You've published several books. Uh, and <laughs> as the advocates left Indianapolis, I ended up with 500 copies of your question and answer book, actually. <laughs> uh, so which I planned. I I I, uh, I I really like that book because you have taken so many different subjects and broken them down into to questions and answers. Healing Our World is a very broad book, but you've written a new book called Death of Regulation, uh, Death by Regulation, excuse me, uh, which you can find at deathbyregulation.us, uh, coming out April 10th? Yes, this Tuesday, actually. And this book is, is a, um, well, it's sort of a, a big expansion of Chapter 6 from Healing Our World, and it, it deals with my experience being a research scientist in the pharmaceutical industry and in academia. What I've done is I've looked at the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act, which really gave the FDA a lot of power. Now, the FDA is supposed to give us safe and effective drugs, but the truth of the matter is no drug is safe for everyone and no drug is effective for everyone. So if the FDA only approved drugs that were safe and effective for everyone, <laughs> we would have no drugs at all. I mean, these drugs, you know, are powerful, uh, powerful things, and they will... That's what gives them their power to heal, but it also gives them the power to harm. And so we always have to be careful when taking drugs. Now, in 1962, <clears throat> when these amendments were passed, things changed a lot. So the FDA had this power, which continues to metastasize. And I, I use the word metastasize. So let me uh, let me pause you there. Let's sure, let's go back sure. to the beginning of the FDA. Okay. Uh, and then we'll get to the 62 amendments, because I think it's... I don't think a lot of people understand when the FDA was founded, what its mission was. We all just kind of have a general idea that this thing is supposed to protect us and give us good drugs and keep our food and, and drugs and medicine and, and all this safe. Uh, so when was the FDA founded and what was its mission? In the early 1900s, it came about and uh, it didn't have a whole lot of power then. But the, again, the idea was to make sure that we had safe food and drugs. In my book, I only concentrate on the drug part because obviously you can't do everything in one book. But right. <laughs> um, And then in 1938, there was an incident where um, a company put out a drug, a safe drug and an unsafe solvent or, you know, a liquid um, and, and they didn't pre-test it. So when some children died, uh, the chemist who put it together actually committed suicide. He, he felt very badly about that. And new regulations were put into place so that drug companies had to show the FDA some degree of safety before the FDA would allow them to market their drugs. Now, in 1962, <clears throat> there was an incident in Europe, the thalidomide incident, where uh, thalidomide was a sleeper Safing a uh, sleeper. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> no, yeah. Thalidomide is, is a, a famous case, and there's some documentaries that I've watched on it where yes. it, it, pregnant women took it. It was supposed to deal with was it morning sickness? 
yes, what happened was it was never marketed for that originally. It was a sleeper, um, uh, a safer sleeping drug. There, I right, thought like said like Ambien <laughs> in that yes, same. Yeah. Yes, yes, you know, because people were dying of barbiturate overdose, so it was safer for adults. But then, when women found that it helped their morning sickness and started taking it, and the drug company started marketing it for that, what happened is, if it, were, it was taken in the first month or two of pregnancy, the children were born without limbs, or sometimes they died before they were born or right after they were born. So it was very tragic. And Life Magazine had a big spread on this in the U.S. And people in the United States were concerned because the FDA had not approved the drug here, but it was being tested. So we had a few cases where children were born without limbs. <clears throat> Now, these 1962 amendments were never really intended to be about safety. They had been floating around in Congress for three years, and, and they were passed, I think, just to reassure the American people. But what they did is they gave the FDA a lot of power, and they focused on effectiveness, which hadn't been focused on before because the Supreme Court had ruled that effectiveness was a matter of opinion. And that's because, again, not every drug is effective. No, really, no drugs are effective in everyone. Yeah, so I, I, I'm very open about my use of antidepressants and have been for a long time. And, you know, they're, they're, I've been on a lot of different SSRIs and they weren't necessarily effective. And then you'd try to go off of them and it's it's a nightmare. I mean, they're, they're, there's it's and, and you don't really read. I can tell you when I started taking them 17 years ago, I had no idea how the drug actually worked on my brain. I had no idea what the long-term effects would be. Uh, I didn't read any of the documentation that the pharmacist gives you. You just kind of have this general assumption that it's safe. And I have a, a coworker who just had a genetic test done where it shows all the different drugs that work with her brain chemistry, uh, some that aren't effective and some that are very harmful to her. And she had been taking some of the harmful drugs according to her brain genetics uh, testing. I mean, it was... It's very uh, kind of eye-opening over the last week where you just go, oh, I'm just kind of, I don't understand the effectiveness, I don't understand the effect, and I'm not being a, a personally responsible because I'm just outsourcing that to the FDA thinking, ah, they'll protect me, it's fine, my doctor knows what they're doing, I'll listen to them. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, the, and they don't often know, do they? No, well, you know, our science really isn't as good as people think it is. That's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is the FDA is kind of between a rock and a hard place. If side effects show up, which they will for every drug, and the public gets wind of them, uh, Congress can get very angry at the FDA and kind of beat up on them um, in their reviews because they want the FDA not to approve anything that isn't totally safe and effective. But if the FDA did that, there would be no new drugs at all. So this is kind of a catch-22 for the FDA. So what they do is, especially under these amendments, is instead of having about a four-year window from the lab bench to the marketplace, drugs now take about 12 to 14 years to get through the regulatory process. So there's a lot of people who die waiting. And according to the calculations I've made and death by regulation, 
about 15 million Americans have died waiting for drugs that could have saved their lives. And that's like 10 times more than all the Americans who have died in all the wars since the country's founding. And that's just the tip of the iceberg because one of the, one of the other big things that happens is it's destroyed innovation, not just in the pharmaceutical industry, but in the areas of prevention. And for example, the FDA really wanted me to work with my company and develop prostaglandins for liver disease, which is what I was working on. They called me when I filed the patent for that use and said they would do everything they could to help us get that drug out the door. But the problem is when you have a really new drug, you don't know how much to give. You don't know how often you have to give it. You don't know how many patients you need in your study to get the statistical significance that the FDA demands. And these studies take years. So if you have to repeat the studies, if you don't guess right on all these things the first time, then you have to repeat the studies, which take years. And by the time we would get the drug out the door, it became very clear that if we had to repeat studies, we would no longer have patent protection and we would not even be able to recover our development costs. So even though there wasn't any treatment for liver, the fibrotic liver disease that I was uh, working on and still isn't, <laughs> um, there, was no, there was no way that the company was willing to take that risk. And that's the problem with this movement from a four-year development window to 12 to 14 years is it's so expensive now that unless a drug is covered by patents and unless the company thinks everything can fall together, right? They just don't develop it. And that's very sad because when I started at the Upjohn company, we did develop drugs without patents. And the prostaglandins we were trying to develop were actually natural products. So and that's the, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I can hear some listeners in their brain going, yeah, but if it takes an extra 10 years to get a drug right, isn't that worth it, even if it does cost the drug companies more? I mean, we don't want people taking drugs and dying. I mean, so what is the – is it actually making it safer by having well, no, that extra that's, testing that's time? the problem, Chris. If it were making it safer, you know, yeah, we could say, well, maybe it's worth paying, you know, 40 times as much for a drug as we, we would have. But the, the actual facts of the matter is before the amendments – the FDA would withdraw about 2.5% of the drugs that they approved from the market when side effects showed up that they couldn't predict. But <laughs> after the amendments, they were withdrawing about 3.3%. So that number didn't go down. Hmm. It's probably They're probably the same number. I, I don't think there's a big difference between those numbers, but they certainly didn't go down. And that was the promise of the amendments, that we would have safer drugs. And of course, we don't. In fact, the most dangerous drug, Vioxx, was approved under the amendments. So that gives you some idea of, of the um, impact or lack of impact, if you will, on safety. Why, of the amendments. Why, why is that a dangerous drug? Why is that the most dangerous drug? Can you? Well, I've never heard of it. Oh, Vioxx. Okay, yes. It was, it was withdrawn from the market, I, I want to say about 10, well, maybe that's a little, maybe about six or seven years ago. Um, I can't always remember the years, but it was um, supposed to be a safer anti-inflammatory drug. Most anti-inflammatory drugs irritate the stomach. It was thought this one would not. The problem is this one caused heart attacks. Ooh. And according to the FDA itself, <laughs> about 16,000 people lost their lives due to heart attacks. 
attacks, and many more had heart attacks and survived them. And that's that's even a bigger um, problem than than Vioxx. So you know that's really really a big problem. I, would- I, I said. Well, I was going to, I mean, I work in tech, and so you don't know a lot of bugs in an app, for instance, when you, until you deploy it and it's out and, and being used by millions of people. I mean, is that kind of the same concept with drugs? You can yes. do a lot of trials, but you're not really going to know how these drugs work until they're out into the population. That's right. And that's the problem. That's the big problem. That's why we have withdrawals. It's not that it's not that not it's not a situation where not enough testing is done. It's simply ignorance on our part. Our science just isn't that good yet, and so so most drugs that get to market uh, get to market because they simply we simply don't know what the problems are. And and it's interesting because aspirin, which probably has saved more lives than any other drugs by preventing and uh, treating heart attacks, is you know would never have made it to the market under the current regulatory regime, <laughs> and that's because it does cause. Uh, stomach irritation and ulcers. So we would have eliminated that drug and never had it if if that had been put out post-amendment. That's fascinating. So you, you've said a couple times that our science isn't that good. Can you kind of go a little more in depth on that? And then how do we make our science better? Well, obviously, you want to invest in science. It's actually going to give you results. And that's one of the big tragedies of the amendments. The uh, companies started focusing on checking all the regulatory boxes and spent a lot of time and money, obviously almost an extra decade, checking the boxes and really got very little information from that relative to how that money could have been invested in research. So one of the, you know, the subtitle of my book, Death by Regulation, how we were robbed of a golden age of health and how we can reclaim it really addresses this because we really were on the verge of a golden age of health when these amendments were passed. You know, we had, we had really changed the whole scientific paradigm. It was just getting ready to open up. We had discovered DNA. We were able to make um, bulk quantities of vitamins and we were beginning to appreciate that optimal nutrition, as opposed to just regular nutrition, you know, really made a difference in our disease profile. When, when I was working at Upjohn, our rats were so healthy, we, we couldn't get disease models easily to test them. And at that time, we didn't have genetic manipulation as a possibility. So what we did is we took away their vitamins, or we overwhelmed their system with things like fat or carbohydrates. And, and that's how we created disease models. And of course, all the researchers looked at this information and went, okay, we need optimal nutrition to pr- protect us from disease. And this is something that was really inhibited by the amendments. And I'll just tell your listeners a really small and tragic story of just one B vitamin, folic acid, that was able to prevent birth defects in children. And we knew this in the early 1980s. But the FDA said to the folic acid manufacturers that they couldn't talk about this health benefit unless they went through this 12 to 14 years of regulatory uh, box checking. <laughs> and, of course, folic acid is, is not on patent. Uh, the, the companies would never have been able to uh, get their development costs back. So, of course, they didn't do it. And so the American public didn't know about this until – 
really the early 90s, mid 90s, when the Center for Disease Control started recommending that all women of childbearing potential take folic acid because you need it in the first month or two of pregnancy. Most women don't know they're uh, pregnant when they need to be having folic acid. So this is one of the things that really was a tragedy for the American people because probably about uh, 10 to 15,000 babies were born needlessly deformed and had to be institutionalized, all because the FDA put a gag order on the folic acid manufacturers. And other countries where this didn't happen, the information got out very quickly and they had much fewer birth defects. So ironically, the 1962 amendments, which were passed to prevent birth defects in children, actually caused them in the U.S. You've talked about the AIDS epidemic and how the FDA actually cost a lot more lives because of yes. they're, they're dealing with drugs. Uh, a, why is that? And B, did, the, did politics play into it because in the 80s, and it was seen as a gay disease, and a lot of conservatives just didn't want to uh, encourage the health of of gay people, which is incredibly sad and tragic. And so did that influence and, and how did it actually end up killing more people because they wouldn't approve some of these drugs? Well, you know, the AIDS patients were pretty desperate. They couldn't wait, you know, 12 to 14 years to have a drug come on the market. So they were importing drugs from other countries where some drugs were approved. And uh, they, they had these drugs taken away from them at the borders oftentimes. And then they hired black market chemists to make the same drugs we were working on in the drug companies. And they distributed them throughout the AIDS community. So by the time the FDA finally gave us permission to test these drugs in people, every AIDS patient in the country who wanted them already had had them and was resistant. So we had to wait for new patients to be diagnosed before we could run our tests. But of course, the really sad thing is this really is a good example of how people die waiting. And if your listeners watch the award-winning movie, Dallas Buyers Club, they saw what happened to a lot of these buyers clubs that tried to distribute these drugs. The FDA persecuted and prosecuted them unless they were well connected to the media as they were in California. So the FDA really went after the loners, so to speak, and let the people who would have exposed the whole FDA paradigm as very deleterious to our health, and they left those people alone. <laughs> so it's just so irritating. Uh, I know, I know. I, I mean, I, I, you have to laugh or you cry. I know. Uh, so I imagine – I don't – no, if you follow the right to try law debate, there's uh, something called right to try where people who yes. are sick, like in those situations, in those patients where they uh, laws are sweeping the nation called right to try. And can you talk about some of the, the, the ethical debates around that and if you support it or not? Sure. Well, Right to Try actually stemmed from a lawsuit from cancer patients who didn't want to go to the black market. They sued the FDA for uh, under what they believed the, their constitutional right to protect their lives. And the courts ruled that cancer patients do not have a constitutional right to save their own lives with unapproved drugs. So Right to Try is basically the same request that the cancer patients were making to the courts, but it's in legislative form. It's passed in 
last I heard it was 38 states. It may actually be a couple more by now. And what it says is that terminally ill patients can go directly to the drug companies if they need to and negotiate with them to get drugs that are in testing but have not been yet approved by the FDA. It's now on the national stage, right to try is being considered nationally and Trump has endorsed it. But the problem with right to try is that the drugs still have to stay in FDA's good graces while all this is going on. And the FDA can punish companies that work directly with patients by dragging their feet on different decision points in the approval process. So I predict that it'll be very difficult for most drug companies to work with the patients and, and give them these extra drugs. I do know a doctor in Houston who's doing it, but in that case, it was really strange because it was a cancer drug. His patients were doing well, and the FDA said they couldn't continue to be treated while the approval process was going on, but that's unusual. Usually, usually the FDA allows that, so that was kind of a, a rare exception. Coming down the pike, though, is another uh, effort by the Heartland Institute, in Chicago, and that one is called Free to Choose Medicine. And your listeners can learn more about that if they go to deathbyregulation.us and buy a copy of my book, Death by Regulation, because one of the bonuses, uh, we have $60 worth of free gifts for your listeners if they order before April 10th. So one of the gifts they get is a coupon in order to get a big discount on free to choose medicine. Free to choose medicine would establish two different tracks for drugs once they got through the first set of FDA tests. And so once a drug enters the free to choose medicine track, it would not have to have to stay in FDA's good graces. So I think that is probably going to be more effective than right to try should it pass. And it's more conservative than my recommendation, which is that we take the approval power away from the FDA and allow patients to take the drugs of their choice, uh, you know, at whatever stage of development, when they feel that the, the risk um, in, in getting a drug that isn't fully tested is offset by the possible benefits that they might enjoy. So here on the program, we really talk about how politics works and, and, and as it exists today and apply libertarian principles to the politics of our day. But let's take it all the way to Ancapistan. Let's say we've erased the government and the free market rules and reigns. How in a pure libertarian society would we make sure that drugs are safe before they hit the market? Well, the best way, I think, is to have certifiers who would do third-party testing, because what your listeners probably don't know is the FDA doesn't do any testing of its own. What they do is they tell the drug companies what testing is needed, and the drug companies do it, and then they submit that data to the FDA. So it's pretty easy to see that that's not as good as third-party evaluation, which is what would happen, I think, in a certifying type of situation. That's what happens now with UL. Uh, for electrical appliances. That little UL symbol that you see on the, on the underside of your appliances is a certification, not a regulation. Uh, an electrical appliance doesn't have to have the UL mark to be sold in the United States, but most of them do because UL will work with the electrical company and make sure that the product is safe. And they do it in a 
you know, in a cooperative way as opposed to a hostile way. So it works out for everybody. And that's the kind of thing we could do with drugs. In fact, some consumer groups right now are already doing that. The Abigail Alliance, which was part of the uh, cancer suit against the FDA, actually evaluated the information that was coming out of clinical trials for about 40 different cancer drugs and recommended that they be approved years before the FDA actually approved them. So they all, so obviously the Abigail Alliance was able to tell years before FDA approval, which drugs really merited approval. And similarly, Public Citizen, which I disagree with on a lot of things, but they do have a really good best pills, worst pills evaluation. And they've been able to identify uh, the bad drugs. In fact, the FDA has withdrawn about 50% of their recommendations for <laughs> withdrawal already. So, you know, if, if, if citizen groups can do this, obviously there's something wrong with the FDA approval system and certification is the answer. What I recommend in my book is we leave the FDA there for, the, for a time being as a certifier so that people who are uncomfortable not having the FDA can wait until the FDA says, yeah, this is a good drug. And those who need it earlier can choose to get it too. So everybody wins. Yeah, take the force out of it. Yeah, there, there's a direct example. Every Fitzbo model on Instagram sells a protein powder or some sort of vitamin that's going to change your life. And the FDA doesn't regulate vitamins and protein shakes and creatine and all that and all that stuff. So you really have hundreds of choices when you're interested in fitness and, and taking vitamins and all these different things. And so I found a, a website called Labdoor, and they basically, as a public service, test all these different uh, products, and I found all the vitamins that I take, and you can notice a difference, because if you take a Centrum, you don't feel any different, but if you take some of the higher rated, more potent even multivitamins, for instance, uh, it it actually, you do feel a difference. Now... Here's the the thing, Labdoor, who knows who funds that? Let's say a major company like Onnit owns it and funds it and puts themselves up at the top of the rankings. Well, that that could in time be exposed and then someone else will pop up and you you have a lag time of maybe a year before another competitor pops up as opposed to the federal government where there can be no competitors, there is no destruction and things just end up getting worse. Well, that's right. And uh, consumerslab.com is another uh, good source. Uh, they're funded by uh, people who want to get their information. So there's no chance of of getting co-opted, so to speak. And, and you get lots of good information that way. And those things are out there now. And I think they would be even more prominent without the amendments. In fact, prior to the amendments, a lot of certifying was already going on. The AMA had a seal of approval that they gave to drugs once they tested them, for example. And in 1938, when there was this poisoning incident I referred to earlier, the um, American Medical Association had not yet given their seal of approval to that drug. So cautious doctors who didn't want to try something new unless they had that certification uh, were protected. And their patients were protected because, you know, they were cautious with what they gave their patients. All right. Well, how could we buy the book? Where could we buy the book? Will it be available in different formats? Give us all the details on death by regulation. 
Okay. Well, right now we're doing a pre-release sale. So if you go to deathbyregulation.us, you can see what your $60 worth of free gifts would be if you buy the book before April 10th. Then on April 10th, my team and I will enter all the orders into Amazon at one time, hoping to get up to the Amazon bestseller list. We've done this before with Healing Our World, so we know it can work, but we obviously need the help of your listeners. So if they want to buy a copy of the book, now's a good time because they'll get $60 worth of free gifts. And what we'll do after, of course, after um, April 10th is we'll continue to promote the book. And it will come out after April 10th in Kindle and audiobook form, but it'll probably be another month for Kindle, and I'm going to guess another two or three months for the audio form. Great. Uh, is there an audiobook of Healing Our World? Yes, there is. Right. Audible has it. And if you go to Amazon, you can click on the link for that, or you can go to my website, ruart.com, and that's R-U-W-A-R-T.com, just like my name. If you go to the place where you can buy healing, you can you will see the link for the audiobook as well. Great. Well, I recommend listeners buy buy both of those books. Uh, they're great reads and you will learn a lot, but definitely get Death by Regulation. Help a fellow libertarian get to the top of the Amazon charts at deathbyregulation.us. Uh, I got that right, right? <laughs> you did, you did. And All I right. just want to remind your listeners that Ron Paul was nice enough to do the foreword. And Jonathan Wright, who's a big nutritionist, did the uh, preface. So, you know, we have a lot of support. Foster Gamble did the afterword. He's the fellow who did the movie Thrive, What Will It Take? He's a libertarian, and he's anticipating doing another Thrive movie. Thrive, here's what it will take. <laughs> so um, I might actually be even interviewed on that uh, on that movie if it comes to pass. Fantastic. How can people follow you, too? Because you do a lot of writing. You're, you're a prolific writer. I mean, you're constantly publishing stuff. So where can people follow you on social, and uh, what's the best way to get your writing? Well, if you go to my website, ruart.com, R-U-W-A-R-T.com, I have a place where you can click on faith to get to the Facebook fan page and to get Twitter and all the other things that I do. So that's probably the easiest one-stop way to do it. All right, great. And hopefully you will, you'll be at the National Libertarian Convention. We can meet up and uh, – <laughs> yeah. And, and see each other again, and I, and you do a lot of speaking too. So if if you're a not, if you're a local Libertarian Party looking for a convention speaker, I imagine Dr. Ruart is available. Yes, and I'm going to be in Texas next weekend, the Texas LP, which is my state party. I'll be at the Mississippi convention at the end of April, and I'll be at the UN convention in <laughs> Omaha at the. Um, End of May. What, so, what is the unconvention? What the have, unconvention. <laughs> what have libertarians done now? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually, I think it's a conglomeration of several states getting together and having um, at a convention that's less business and more, uh, I guess, more discussions and more 
exciting challenges to the the philosophy. So that ought to, it's it's a first. Uh, so I'm, you know, I can't really tell you what it's like yet. <laughs> I'm so behind it. I am against platform. I'm against bylaws. And as everybody knows, I'm against Bittner. But that's an inside joke in the podcast. But I, uh, yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, so check that out if you live in the central part of the country. All right. Well, thank you for joining me here on We Are Libertarians. And again, everybody, get the book of Death by Regulation. Anything that you'd like to end on? Yes, I would just like to remind everyone, too, that I will also be in Poland in August for the Liberty International Conference. And I'm currently chair of that organization. I want to invite all of your uh, listeners to check us out at Liberty International. So that that organization really is the Johnny Appleseed of the movement. We were around for the last 30 years before all of the students were activated by Ron Paul. Now we have, of course, a lot of international student organizations. So I just invite you all to check us out there. Cool. We have a couple Polish listeners. I'll, uh, I'll send them that uh, information. All right. Please do. Thank you for joining us here on We Are Libertarians. And thank you for having me, Chris. And good day to all your listeners. Thank you for listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Get our other shows at wearelibertarians.com.